This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Hello, Behind the Knife listeners. We are so excited to be back with you for another Clinical Challenges in Colon and Rectal Surgery here with the Leahy Colorectal Surgery team. It's been a hot minute since we put together an episode for our Behind the Knife audience, and I'm sure that they have missed us quite dearly. So to recap, we had some prior episodes talking about endoscopic management of advanced colorectal polyps, the role of total new adjuvant therapy for locally advanced rectal cancer, surgical management of rectal prolapse. We talked about the use of biologic medications in patients with Crohn's disease requiring ileocolic resection, small bowel strictures, and Crohn's disease. And today, we're thrilled to address a very, very challenging topic, which is horseshoe abscess and fistula. We will put in a little plug there for our new colorectal team for Louisville, and they did a recent episode called Let's Talk Ostomies. So once again, we have with us Dr. Peter West Marcello and Dr. Tess Hannah Alette, and we do have a special guest that we're going to introduce in a minute. So say hi, everybody. Hey, guys. The team, it's great to be back together to do another episode of Behind the Knife. It does seem like it's been a while. And this is also August, so it's another new year for the colorectal residents. We're excited to see Mike and Anna, our former residents, leave and start their careers. And we actually welcome Gabby and Vanessa as they start your training. Yeah. Hey, team. Missing you all in Burlington. Similarly, sad to see our fellow Don Yoon go, but excited to see how things go in his first year and welcome our new fellow, Samantha Rivard, who also just started with us. So off to a great, great start for the year. Awesome. Well, today we have a very, very special guest with us. So Dr. Julia Sarayderides. She's one of our esteemed partners in the Department of Colon and Rectal Surgery at Leahy Hospital Medical Center. So a brief introduction for Dr. Julia, as she is affectionately called by her patients. So Dr. Julia completed her general surgery residency at Mass General Hospital. She did a one-year colorectal fellowship at Leahy Hospital Medical Center and was then hired on as staff after training. So she's now in her sixth year of practice. Welcome, Dr. Julia. Welcome, Julia. Uh, thanks for having me, everyone. Happy to be here. All right. So like our prior clinical challenges episodes, we're just going to describe one case and we're going to take a, a deep dive about complex medical and surgical decision making. And then a reminder, you can follow along with us on the Behind the Knife YouTube channel for some relevant images. All right. So let's get into it. So this is a 59-year-old female. She had no relevant medical or surgical history, and she had been seen a year prior by one of our nurse practitioners for buttock pain. She had been having this for a few months, and this was low tailbone pain was associated with bowel movements. She had some difficulty sitting, wasn't really having any rectal drainage, but she could sit, feel some uh, swelling by her rectum on both sides. And so I guess, Tess, with that 
in getting ready to see a patient like this in clinic, what are you thinking about in terms of your differential? Sure. Pretty limited history at this point. So I'd obviously want to get into the bowel changes, any bleeding, family history, get a little bit more information about the nature of the pain, colonoscopy. But I, I think the things that I'd be thinking about walking into the room are whether there's a rectal mass, luminally, a retrorectal lesion, abscess, given the tailbone pain, thinking about coccidinia. All right, great. So fortunately for me, her primary care had already ordered an MRI. And so maybe at some point we'll talk about the role of MRI and perianal fistulas and horseshoe abscesses. But she already had an MRI and that revealed a bilobed pocket of fluid abutting the posterior aspect of the levator sling. And so this was suggestive of a rectal fistula. And so there was, there were fluid collections and then they extended into the subcutaneous tissue on each side of the buttock. So just a little bit more information, Tess, like you're asking about, so multiple soft bowel movements per day, denies any rectal bleeding, no personal history of colon cancer, no personal history of inflammatory bowel disease. She'd last had a colonoscopy in 2018, and that was normal. No family history of colorectal cancer. And on exam in clinic when you're seeing her, she has two areas of induration in the subcutaneous tissue, and it's overlying bilateral ischiorectal fossae. There's no erythema, really minimal tenderness to palpation. There's no external opening to suggest a fistula. You do a digital rectal exam. There's good resting sphincter tone. There's good augmentation when asked to squeeze. There's no masses. There's no blood. And then you do palpate, and there's minimal tenderness overlying bilateral issue rectal fossa. But when you palpate in the posterior midline, there's a little bit more tenderness that's normal. So then you do an anoscopy, and that's also normal. And so then again, I guess I'll just say a plug here to follow along on YouTube if you like to look at some images with us. And so I'm showing a representative cut of the pelvic MRI that she had. And again, that revealed a bilobe pocket of fluid abutting the posterior aspect of the levator sling. And this is really suggestive of a rectal fistula. So Tess, what are some of your considerations with this extra information? And you're seeing her again in clinic. Yeah, you gave a lot of really good information there. I think this is somewhat of an interesting presentation as... Most of the patients that I've treated for these complex abscesses or fistulas, the horseshoe abscess are coming in through the emergency room. I think one important thing to note that this case highlights is sometimes these symptoms may be a little more vague with the deep pain or spasm. And often on physical exam, you may not see some of the classic signs of a perianal abscess. A few recent cases that I can think of in treating patients with these really had no obvious fluctuant areas externally and have somewhat of a limited examination due to discomfort. And so I think really getting a thorough history and having always having this on your differential is important. While I typically wouldn't get imaging for most perianal abscesses, I do think when it comes to a horseshoe abscess in the acute setting, CT can be helpful. And then, as in your case, the MRI is going to give a lot more detailed information in relation to the pelvic floor muscles and demonstrate any obvious fistula. Uh, I do think that these are going to be best managed in the operating room, given the complexity and often how deep these are. So draining these in the office is not going to be well tolerated, and we're not going to do a good job in, in draining these. So I think planning and talking to the patient about and doing it in the operating room and then the other things I think about are their sphincter tone, which you commented on. Anytime you're dealing with fistulas, wanting to know baseline continence is really important. And then lastly, I try to set expectations from the get-go. So 
the first step is try to drain the infection, get you feeling better, and then upfront about the likelihood for possibly many drains and that definitive management in this process may be a long road and that we're going to be hanging out together for a while. So I'll just chime in for a little bit because I think the important message I think for, the, for those listening is that most of the time you won't have imaging when you see these people. They're going to have pain with bowel movements. They may have a fever, chills, slightly elevated white count. And when you feel that posterior part between the coccyx and your finger, the pubic callus, that's where you're going to feel fullness. And that's where it's really going to be tender. And if you feel that, you know what's going on. And so the, that patient needs to go to the OR. It's not something I try to drain in the office. And I think as we get into the case more, we'll talk about do you use a needle or you just open the space? And so I, I would say I don't typically get imaging, but I would not have an issue if somebody would want to get a CT to look to see if there is a unilateral or bilateral horseshoe associated with that post-anal abscess. Julia, your thoughts? Yeah. So it's interesting because I'd say most of these that I have seen have usually been via the emergency room and have been more of an acute presentation, usually in the abscess presentation rather than the fistula that will subsequently follow. Usually I'm pretty much against cross-sectional imaging for perianal or perirectal abscesses. However, in this situation, which is that there are essentially no physical exam findings or physical exam findings you can obtain given their discomfort, I do think the cross-sectional imaging is appropriate. It won't give you good anatomic detail, but it just sort of will indicate that there is an abscess. And I think that both for the intersyncteric and the horseshoe abscesses, that can be helpful. Other than that, I also agree that the operating room is the place to go. I feel like when you try to just do an IND in the emergency room or even in the clinic, it's usually an inadequate job and you end up going to the operating room within a week to try to finish it up. Hey, Chas, what position are you going to put them in? you put them in candy canes? Are you going to put them in chrome? What do you think? Yeah, so typically I would do this in lipotomy positioning because you get a better view of the posterior midline in that position. I agree. I think it's easier that way. It's also fast. You're, usually these are not at two in the afternoon electively. All, all great all great points. Let's keep the case moving. So I took her to the operating room. Uh, I did find a posterior midline fistula, and that did connect to the postanal space, and there was an internal opening. Distal to the dentate line, got out about 25 cc's, purulent fluid, drained from bilateral issue rectal fossae, and that both connected to the midline, to the posterior midline externally open through the, the postanal space distal to the dentate line. So Dr. Julia, what are some of the things you're thinking about on the OR? And you see a nice picture with all these blue cetons I'm putting in with patients, too many, just tight enough, too loose. What do you think? So first off, I think it looks great, John, but I would always start every one of these procedures with a flexible sigmoidoscopy to assess for proctitis and rule out inflammatory bowel disease. Number two, looks like you did a great job draining with the counter incisions into the issue rectal fossa on either side. I would really, in my operative note, try to detail as much as possible the extent of sphincter involvement for the posterior midline, just so I have an idea in my head, how am I going to definitively repair this fistula eventually? And number two, just really keeping big openings on the issue rectal areas, really trying to promote drainage with the goal eventually of coming down to a single seton over the ensuing months. I love that you have a picture. I try to include a picture on all my fistula cases in my operative note, just so I know where are the cetons, what am I dealing with, so that when I'm going back for the fistula repair or the discussion of fistula repair, I have an idea of what I'm going to be talking about with the patient. 
John, let me just ask you this. When you drained this, did you put like a schnitt through the intro opening down to the full sale space or did you open the full sale space and go back up? Yeah, so where did you go? Yeah, starting from internal. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's really helpful if you can see that opening in the posterior midline. Just take a clamp and go down, and then that'll help you guide where to start your external incision. If you don't sometimes see a big, don't have internal openings, Peter. Yeah, sometimes you may not see a huge one, but if you do, take it. But if you don't, then you have to just start with that, and that's where I think some people, uh, Pat Roberts, would use a syringe and try to aspirate and then make the cut on that. Most of the time with some of the other parties, you just make the incision two or three centimeters outside the sphincter complex and then just start in and go in and drain the abscess that way. Appreciate the comments. So um, you, go ahead. Uh, so yeah, and, and Peter, this brings up an interesting point about talking about the Hanley procedure, something that we always learn in training. You want to talk, get any comments about that? Sure. So here, for this, for those who are watching online, just noting the space, the boundaries of the space, having the anal ligament, having the levators, the, the coccyx, and then the anus, the boundaries of the space. So let's move on to the next next slide, and we'll talk for a second next. Who was Hanley? John, who was Hanley? I would love to say that I have this as walking around knowledge. I did not. Click. So I'm going to admit that I just found out that he was Jared Oshner. Yeah. Can you go ahead and click the next part for those who are watching? He, and when did he describe it? It was 1965. I was, I mean, that's a long time ago. I was four years old. So <laughs> like <laughs> trying to think about being a proctologist, but not really. And it was published in DCR in the eighth volume of DCR. And I don't know where we are now or many years later. But he described a classic Hanley procedure, which was performing the fistulotomy as the in the original description from the internal opening across the external sphincter to the deep full sandal space and then doing counter incisions laterally. And so the Hanley part of it was not opening the lateral extensions but putting in drains to the both the left and right sides. But in the original description, he would perform the fistulotomy complete, which I think many of us would be concerned about in terms of sphincter function. But that was a classic description going back a long time ago, 1965. Awesome. I'd like to... I'd like to just pause here really quickly. One thing that I sometimes struggle with in, in these patients, just given often how acute and bad the infections can be is what to do with antibiotics. Typically for most perianal abscesses, I don't routinely give any antibiotics unless there's extensive cellulitis, poorly controlled diabetic, or even a compromised. But there is some data out there to say antibiotics may reduce fistula formation. The literature is a bit mixed. So for horseshoe abscesses, what about in these cases? What are others doing? I'll chime in and say, unless there's a lot of cellulitis or insulin-dependent diabetic or compromised, you're going to do this. And John, we should go to the next slide, talk about the modified Italy, which is where you would put a seton like you did in, in your area, not doing the fistulotomy, just draining the abscess, place the seton to the posterior midline, and then from the lateral extensions back to that postanal space opening. That's the modified. And I, don't, I think that's what the majority of us do now when we do drainage. And I say no for antibiotics. Julia? Same, Peter. I 
really feel like if you've done an adequate job draining the abscess, unless there is significant cellulitis or they are immunocompromised, there's no indication for antibiotics. All right, so let's come back to the case. So put in a bunch of CETON. So Dr. Julia, when do you see these patients again in your clinic, practical matter? So I think the goal towards definitive official repair is to get yourself down to a single isolated tract. And so what I typically do is see them back in about a month with a plan to remove one of the ischiorectal outside of the sphincter cetons, and then we'll see them back a month later, remove the other one, and then plan for definitive repair about a month after that. So it's sort of like a month-to-month basis with the idea that it's going to be at least three or four months before we're approaching the definitive fistula repair. Tess, I love your points earlier about how when you first meet these people, I always talk about horseshoe fistula being a really challenging pathology to treat and that we have to go step-by-step and slowly to get ourselves to the best chance of eventual cure. All right. So I saw her again a month later, had really minimal amount of induration on the right side, and there was really nothing at all on the left side. And so I removed the left side because that one looked good. And so similarly, like to do sort of a staged approach. And so Peter, your thoughts about assessing those tracks and how you're figuring out when you're ready to go for a fistulotomy or definitive repair? Yeah, I think the hard part here is that it always looks so pretty when you put the C10s out to the side and you think it's going to heal down to a nice single track, the same size as the seton. That doesn't happen all the time. And I look at tracks as being wet or dry. A wet track is going to have a lot of heaped up granulation. They're going to keep putting out mucoperlite material. When I bring them back to the office, I like to use a lacrimal duct probe because I want to know if before I pull that seton, if it is a small channel or is there still a side pocket? Because if you pull it out, there's a big side pocket that's wet it is going to recur. You're going to go back backwards. So in the hard part, is there's no way I know of to convert a wet track to a dry track other than sometimes waiting. But even there, you can scrape it out even in the office with a bone curette. But it's hard to convert somebody who forms wet tracks to dry tracks. Dry tracks are always easier. And so I think when I see those, the, the track, it kind of, kind of helps me figure out what the next steps are. In use a pro to make sure there isn't like a side pocket or cavity still and try to get it to a small area before you pull the seat on. Nice. All right, so I saw her a month later. And again, yeah, plan was to remove that right-sided drain so I could just get her down to the one. Uh, unfortunately, when I saw her, and you can see on this new picture here, if you're following along, that she had a new area of drainage and pain and a completely separate area. No fevers or chills, but again, new opening, new swelling in an area where there wasn't a prior CTON, there wasn't an IND. So Dr. Julia, what are you thinking when you're seeing that in clinic? Oh, man. Well, first I have like a huge internal groan. (laughs) (laughs) I shake my fist to fistulas in general, but I think some the some of these postnatal horseshoes are some of the hardest things to treat because, and I think Schutz used to say this that there's almost like a chronic sepsis within a cavity within that postnatal space, and you really have to in that first procedure, totally clear it out so that you're just dealing with like fresh tissue with a seton in place. So in that situation, I groan inwardly and then say, okay, I guess we got to go back to the operating room again and really try to eradicate that sort of infected nidus. Yeah, I would say I agree, Julia. You're going back and you got to open that up. And remember, the space around the anus, there's an inner and outer, it's circular. So the pus will find a way around, uh, pathway of least resistance. 
And sometimes it just says, even though the seton is in, it's, I'd rather go around than come out. And so as soon as somebody has new complaints, I say, let me know if anything new is occurring. And I try to get them in and then here, you're just going to have to bring them back. All right. So here we are back in the operating room. And for all those listeners who thought we were just going to do a straightforward horseshoe abscess, aha, we fooled you. So I found an additional external fistula opening. So again, right posterior ischorectal fossa, even further away from the anal verge. But it connected to the same internal opening as the prior posterior midline fistula tract. There really wasn't any undrained abscess. So I put another seton through that opening, kept the right-sided external drain opening. So Tess, what are you thinking now that you're seeing this and, and what are you processing in terms of what am I going to do for this lady? Yeah, I mean, I think you did what I would have done as well. Obviously, you commented on you want to make sure you're not missing any undrained collection in the operating room, checking for any additional side tracks or branches or any other internal openings. So I, if you hadn't at this point done a flex sig, I'd also be thinking about, is this Crohn's disease? If this isn't acting typical, so doing a flex sig, ruling out proctitis. And then interrogating the fistula tracts with hydrogen peroxide, making sure that there's no additional internal openings or other tracts that you're missing. Sounds like now you do have the fistula controlled. So again, wait, be patient. This is someone when I see her back, if things aren't healing or looking right, I might consider an MRI again, just to make sure I'm not missing anything. But hopefully when you see her back, if everything's draining down to the posterior midline, you can get that remaining right drain out. John, just to comment, those who are watching, I like these Cetons better. They're a little more snug than, than some of your other ones. And so when they're wiping, I think they're more comfortable. I, I would say that those are Leahy place Cetons. <laughs> look very good, John. Thank you, sir. Yeah, I mean, I, and just a little comment, like a little commentary. I mean, as a junior attending, I would just strongly emphasize, don't hesitate to ask for help. So I specifically remember being in the, op and this was like at this point, maybe seven or eight months ago, being in the operating room, looking at that and being like, what am I going to do with this? And Dr. Kleiman happened to be in another room and I think maybe just happened to come in or maybe I called him in. And so he was there looking at it together and we kind of came up with a plan for what I was going to do for it that we'll talk about shortly, but always good to pull the audience if you have that available. So I saw him again in the clinic two months later, confirmed that there were no additional areas where there was opening or induration. So I actually removed that subcutaneous one on the right. So that really all that she had were the two drains coursing internally into the posterior midline. Saw her again a couple months later, no new areas. And so then we wind up back in the operating room to try to proceed with a definitive repair. So I'll just show you if you're watching along that I did still see a couple months later that that external opening over the right issue like faucet was still open and still had that low transferentary fistula tract. So I'll pause for those again following on YouTube so you can clearly show this is a fistula. That's what it looks like. The skin hasn't healed. There's granulation tissue and drainage that you, and you can really palpate a cord overlying the skin. So Dr. Julia, what are your thoughts about how you're going to fix this? And does that opening change things for you? How are you thinking about this? Oh, so that opening, I don't like it. I feel like there's still some undrained sepsis that's evacuating through that ischiorectal external opening. So, I mean, I think at this point, I probably would bring them back again, clean it out again, and try again with a C-tone to really winnow it down. I might even consider at that point like excising part of the tract to really try to get to fresh tissue. But 
Like, I, I don't see how you can go forward with definitive repair if you're still sprouting new openings. I'll just chime in to say I agree with that. I think you've got to all inject it. Sometimes it's just a bait cavity that doesn't necessarily communicate fully, and you've yeah. just got to cut down on it. And then you got to see it back in the office every week or two weeks to watch the channel itself heal up, even if it does not fully communicate. Man, I think maybe we'll let, let's assume that improves, John, and now let's talk about how we would manage the large internal, single internal opening. Yeah, so I mean, when I was looking at that, when I first back, brought her back and, and when I was looking at that with Dave, the thought was that there's basically one, I, I can make a single incision to do a lift procedure and basically find both tracks with that same incision. So we'll talk a little bit now about lifts versus advancement flaps. I come down more on the side of lifts for a few reasons, but maybe I'll just pause there and open it up to group to talk about lift versus flap and any other options. Julia, why don't you go ahead? Sure. So I, John, I'm with you. I love a lift. I think it's a great way to approach a transphenteric fistula, but I really feel pretty strongly that it's for a isolated single transphenteric fistula. And so I love when there's just a, it's not a superficial fistula. It's really does involve some part of the sphincter complex. I love doing a lift for those, but it was something that has, and I've had a couple of them over the years where it's just, you cannot get it down to a single tract. It's just, you can't. And then in those folks, I usually do end up doing an endoanal advancement flap because I think that you are really definitively closing that internal opening and you can just open up the external areas more robustly. Sometimes I'll use like a little baby Pezar or Malincott drain on the external side and allow those to drain and close while you've taken care of the internal opening. But I think for some, any case where you're like, oh God, I just got to do for the definitive fistula dry, I've tried to really narrow this down and it's just narrowed to these few areas, then I think you're really looking more at a flap than a lift. Tessa, are you on the side of, uh, you were a flapper or are you a lifter? I've kind of gone back and forth. So far early on, I was doing a lot more lifts and then have recently been doing more flaps. I think so far, if I'm dealing with, I've had only, I think one case where there's double tracks sharing a same internal opening. And for that, I did a a, fla a flap just again be because of the multiple tracks and the single internal opening. Yeah, so I, I and I'll just say that I, I do more flaps than I do lifts, not that I don't like a lift, but it's because we're in a training program. And so just looking at what the other partners do, I focus more on doing mass and flaps for many of these cases. And I'm more of a thicker versus a thin flap. I think the flaps work mainly because you're closing the internal opening. I don't think pulling the mucosa down over really makes a difference. You need to lift up the mucosa in order to get the bite into the muscle. But I do want to talk about another option, which is fistulotomy with immediate muscle reconstruction. John, can we flip to the next slides? So you can do a, a treatment option is to do a fistulotomy. And sometimes you're in there, it's like, it's just a little bit of muscle and you go through it. It's like, it's more than you thought. And so what do you do there? Keep going, John. So there are concerns for weakening the sphincter. And I think the most important thing is what I appreciate is the symmetry of the anus. Symmetry is really nice when you have a circle and the anal canal likes the circle. It does not like a keyhole. And so when you do a fistulotomy, you don't regain the symmetry. So move on to the next slide for those that are watching. So why not consider putting it together? We know if you have a traumatic injury that you can, you should put it back together if you're called into the OB. 
And there are studies on immediate muscle reconstruction that can be added to fistulotomy as long as the tract is pretty dry. So for those watching, I'm going to describe how we do it. So John, let's start. This is a case that John and I shared uh, with a low posterior transfectoric fistula. We put a probe through to find the tract, realize it's about probably 15% of the muscle. You need to saucerize out the skin because when it goes to heal, you don't want the skin to bridge over. Then as you cut through the muscle, you take a big swallow because you get nervous when you cut it. And then you'll find the granulation of the base. If there's a cavity, you can scrape all that out. So you want to get rid of all the granulation, get rid of the internal opening, cauterizing it, and then take out the Hill-Ferguson and make sure that the skin is not going to bridge over. And then figure out where your muscle is. I like a vicol tool or a zero vicol on the UR6. I like the bite to take the whole scoop of the UR6 needle. Uh, that's a good, healthy bite. I do interrupted sutures. I start from the deep or the proximal, then come out to the shallow or distal. And just a small gaps in between, just two or three millimeters. Put the sutures in and then tie them together. And you've got the track there. And if you do it tightly enough, well, why does the bacteria want to go or the poop want to go under your tunnel? Why not just go over the muscle and then leave it there? And so I've probably done 20 or 30 of these. I just did one last week for a low transfectoric fistula. That patient had two internal openings. So it wouldn't be a candidate for a lift. It was going to be a big flap. So they were, there was a bridge of muscle. And I'm like, I'm just going to open it and reconstruct it. And I think it is something that you can do and should consider when you do a fistulotomy, and sometimes when you failed your lift or you failed your flap, the only thing left you can really do to get it to heal is to do the fistulotomy. So I'll just put a shout out for, for fistulotomy with immediate muscle reconstruction. Why not? So go ahead, John. Nice. No, I, I love it. And I was excited to be a part of that. And I'm, I'm definitely uh, starting to do that more uh, in my practice as well. So looking forward to some of the results. So I'll just comment for this patient, I ended up doing double lift. And when I saw her back in clinic, I still, so I put in a seton through that external tract to allow that to drain and everything was healing well, actually. And I was planning to take out that seton, but then she was going on a trip for a couple of weeks. So we said, okay, leave it in place. And I'm going to be seeing her for follow-up in a couple of weeks. So maybe for our next episode, I'll let you know how she's doing. So Dr. Julia, maybe you can tell us a little bit about some of the work you're doing with fistulas on a national level. Sure. So basically, interestingly enough, there are sexier topics in our you know colorectal world, rectal cancer, Crohn's, IBD, but fistulas, just because there's such a heterogeneity in how we treat them and also in their presentation, the practice patterns across the United States are like very heterogeneous. And also, you no one really knows what the right answer is. And so for this reason, a bunch of folks at the American Society of Colorectal Surgeons have gotten together with eight different centers across the United States to try to create a quality collaborative to evaluate the treatment of fistulas. So that's going to create an instrument to try to really delineate how are we approaching repairs? How do you do your lift, Peter? How do you do your flap? Like, is it a thick flap? Is it a thin flap? What suture do you use? Et cetera, et cetera. And then following the patients in their post-operative period and trying to get some just more granular detail about how people are approaching it and also what outcomes are, and then hopefully have some quality improvement projects that can sort of move the field forward. So looking out for this and starting to collect data over the next six to 12 months, and you'll hopefully hear about the first few folks in the project at the 2024 meeting. Awesome. Very exciting. Well, 
All right. Well, as always, this has been phenomenal. Unfortunately, we are very much so out of time. And so we're going to wrap up with our takeaways as we usually do. So Tess, you're up. You start us off. Yeah. So management of complex fistula in ANO can be a long process. Set expectations and be patient. And then as we've alluded to, keep detailed operative notes, pictures, help yourself for the next case. Nice. All right. The Marcelo Musk knows slow and steady wins the race, hopefully. In other words, if the track doesn't look right to do something, fix the track and wait longer because that'll hopefully lead more success. And if you have a wet track, that, that one's going to be a problem if you're going to try to flap over on top of it because the granulation in the track may not seal up. And I think when all else fails and you got to do the fistulotomy, think about immediate muscle reconstruction. You really got very little to lose, so I'll say, why not? Julia's Jewels. I love it. Credit to Marcello. Wow. Oh, great. So I, a couple of jewels, I guess, that I have is, number one, I always use a CETON. Number two, I always wait long enough for my definitive repair, so typically it's about three months. I also really want to make sure that there's no ongoing sepsis. If there is ongoing sepsis, go back to the drawing board, really try to get control of the fistula. And lastly, I'll just reemphasize, I like Tessa's point about adjust expectations and really if you counsel them at the beginning that close to half of abscesses go on to form fistulas and from fistulas, about 60 to 70% of them will be successful and I mean, 30 to 40% will fail. I think people are really much more open to understanding it's a long process. I have a couple of historical anecdotes that I really like to bring up with folks in the office. Number one, I say that Hippocrates was treating fistulas with horse hair cetons back in 300 BC. So this problem has plagued humanity since the beginning of recorded time. I also like to say that Louis XIV had a fistula and they scoured the French countryside looking for individuals to try and fix the fistula. And they found some barber surgeon who practiced on pigs for a year before he gave them a fistulotomy. So I like to put those in for the appropriate patient to just let them know, hey, you're not the only one. This this is hard. It's tough. And like that lots of people have struggled with this, but you know, perseverance will get you there. Louis the Fourteenth. I can remember that one. Oh, it's a good one. And this 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 barber surgeon did this fistulotomy and then retired. He was like, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got a bucket of cash. We're going for it. He made he made the king incontinent, and so then he got killed. So, all right. Well, mine are not nearly as cool, but I just love the concept of putting pictures in there. Thanks, Julia, for commenting on that. And I think I that started from I would say Milsom. He was always putting pictures in, in, in charts, and it's just such a great way to tell the story and look at things. So I'm always. Asking patient for permission, but always putting pictures of the chart and that goes for everything, your specimens, wounds, everything, just so you can really have a clear picture in your mind. So advocate for that. All right. So we're wrapping up our seventh episode here. And so again, if you like wow. dialogue weeds, yeah, consider joining us Sunday evenings for our colorectal surgery virtual education series. A reminder, we're partnering with Behind the Knife and Surgeon for that education series as well. We have some show notes that you can check for some details. We're going to see you again in January. And so we're going to have a journal club review on anal dysplasia and, and high-resolution anoscopy. And if you enjoyed the session, please do leave us a review. As Behind the Knife always says, all dominate, dominate the, day. the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. 
Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.